episode one, two, three of the Michael Anthony Show. And this evening, well, we're joined by a god. It would be immoral of me to give this guy a further introduction. Respect to the MA Show listeners, wherever you may be. Leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, but more importantly, for the next hour or so, have a notepad and have a pen. Because to put it simply, the world has stopped creating individuals such as this. Ladies and gentlemen, the living icon, Mr. Chaz Pal Menteri. So he says to me, he goes, Chaz, you realize this movie won't get made, right? And I said, you're right, with you. But it will get made. He goes, what makes you so sure? I said, because it's too fucking good. That's Have you heard the Michael Anthony show? People think I'm a main guy. I'm in the mob. I was in the mob. I was never in the mob. We had, we had a tough neighborhood, but boy, the Irish, they could fight too, let me tell you. The worst thing to be was a rat. You know, to, to us, that was worse than being a criminal, is being a rat. I walk in the dressing room and there's Bob De Niro sitting there. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. Is wasted talent. Is wasted talent. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. The sinking sand of despair. The smell of dread in the air. I'm head to toe in my own fear. I'm going to die and I need to cry. The legend that is Chaz Palmenteri. Chaz, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, thanks a lot, Michael. It's nice to be here. Not just as a performer and an artist are you somebody who's moved me, but as a kind of semi-professional philosopher, your fearlessness. Do you think that comes from the backdrop of the upbringing, being on the stoop in the Bronx and yeah. seeing things that people nowadays couldn't even comprehend? Absolutely. It absolutely comes from growing up like that, having to... Uh, you know, just growing up with uh, this thing that you can get through anything. And, and I, but I also think it's my mom and dad who gave me this incredible amount of confidence, told me that I was going to be a success. And they told my sisters the same thing. And my sisters were very big successes, both of them. Uh, I, I think it comes from that. And I also think it just comes from growing up in the area where I grew up and that you feel like, uh, you know, you could see things before they happen and you could just, you know, get through it. What was it like back in the 60s, the Bronx? Like, we hear the stories and we obviously know yeah. about the uh, the Italian arrival in New York City yeah. in the early well, 1900s, saw, no, same as the Irish. Right, if you saw Bronx Tale, that's exactly my... I mean, obviously, a Bronx Tale is, is my life story. Um, my real name is Colodro, and uh, I grew up and I saw this guy whack a guy and I became friends with the mobster. And Yeah, so, so what <laughs> happens? You're, you're, si- you're sitting outside your house, your apartment. Yes. In, yes. Yeah, in the Bronx in, in the 1960s. And you see a guy who's a, a kind of minor player in, in mafia circles and he shoots a guy on the street. Right, right. The two cars were backing. I thought they were fighting over a parking space. And one guy got out with a baseball bat and smashed the window of the guy in the back trying to sneak it behind him. And the guy got out. His whole head was bloody and he was about to hit him again. Then this guy, Sonny, came over and protected his friend and killed the other guy with a baseball bat. You saw him shoot him, and you saw the body drop to the ground. And Oh, yeah, six. I was only about seven feet away. You know? So then what happens? Your, your father pulls you up to your apartment. I, all of a sudden, I, next minute I knew I was flying up the steps, and my father was, like, just bringing me up the steps, and I was, I was trying to keep up with him. You know, my feet were climbing up the steps. And, uh, uh, and what happened was the cops came upstairs, just like in the movie, in reality, is I never went downstairs and saw a lineup. That's that I, I embellished that as a writer. But when, yeah. when the cops came upstairs, they said we know the kid was there. Everybody said they the kid was standing right there. He was sitting right on the stoop. And my father said he doesn't know anything. And he turned to me and says, "Did you see anything?" I said, "I didn't see nothing, Dad." And he said, "Look, my my son's not coming down there. They wanted me to come down there to to, to witness that." I said, "No." I said, "I didn't see anything." And How did they, you know so young not to speak? Because now if you look at a nine-year-old in the modern climate, 
It's just something you couldn't imagine. Do you think there's a there's nearly an accidental intelligence that's ingrained in people who are from places of everyday trauma? I, I just knew at nine years old, we are, everybody talked about the worst thing. We used to hear people talk. He's a rat. That guy's a rat. The worst thing to be was a rat. You know, to, to us, that was worse than being a criminal is being a rat. It was nearly worse than being a murderer, being a rat. Oh, yeah. A rat was like, oh, my God. You know, so even at, at that age, I knew I was not going to rat. When these Irish and Italian communities went over to America, leaving their home countries, looking for opportunities, and they were marginalized upon arrival, they knew they couldn't trust the government. So they kind of had to create their own law and trust each other. So the new form of being a criminal was nearly being a rat, because in order to be a rat, you actually had to go back to the original government that was oppressing these societies. That's absolutely correct. I mean, that's how the mafia started way, way, way back. You know, they they didn't rely on the government or laws uh, and they just started like having their own clans. The Irish, too. Same thing. Did you have many experiences with the Irish growing up? The Irish were in another section. It was called the inward section. Uh, and one thing I got to say, boy, you, you would drive up there on the weekends and there'd be fights out of the bar every night. And I, and I got to tell you, boy, and we had, we had a tough neighborhood, but boy, the Irish, they could fight too. Let me tell you, <laughs> they were, they were good bangers, boy. I got to tell you. So it was always back then. It was very separate. There was the African-American community, the Irish community, the Jewish community, the Italian community, and nobody went into each other's area. The only really thing that mattered was was loyalty. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know something, Michael? I don't I, I'm not sure how old how old are you, Michael? Twenty-eight. Oh, so you're twenty-eight. Okay. So do you have friends, friends that you grew up with from like first grade, second grade? Are you still friends with them? Some boys I've been mates with since six, yeah. seven years old, yeah. Oh wow. Well, because you're still twenty-eight. So, but what happens is People go, I have the same 25 guys. We are friends for, I'd say, I'm 69. We have friends for 60 years. The same 25 guys. Now, three of them have passed away. Now, there's only 22 of us. But what I'm saying to you is people go, that doesn't happen today. When you have the internet, nobody's friends anymore. Yeah. You know why? Think of it this way, Michael. What's the most... To be with a friend, what is, it, what is the most impactful thing you could do? And that is combat. If you look at guys who went into combat, they remember these guys their whole life, okay? And they stay friends with them, or if they ever run into them, it's like they just met. Well, when your kids growing up in the street like we were, we shared blood together, we, mm. we fought together. So that was like combat to us. There's a friendship there and a bond that you can't get today. You can't, you can't because it's the internet has just made everybody, you know, talking to each other. There's no closeness. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to be physical, just even emotional combat in which telling someone the truth, not trying to impress each other and knowing each other's flaws. I'm not somebody who's on social media Mm -hmm. and the majority of my close friends, none of us would be. And I believe it is because I think we recognize exactly what you're saying. Yes. We envy what, what you guys kind of told us about, not just through your movies, but even our fathers and uncles and those relationships, just they are no longer possible if we are constantly advertising a false version of ourselves online. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, because nobody knows who we, you know, who, who anybody is anymore. Nobody knows anything. You know, I wrote a line. <clears throat> I'm writing a new play uh, for Broadway. And I wrote a line in it, and, I, and, and the line is, they, because they're talking about the internet, this guy talking to the other guy, and he says to him, he goes, what the internet has done, he says, it brought people, it, it's brought people uh, farther away from you closer, but it's also made people close to you yeah. farther away. Yeah. You know, uh, I, my, my, my daughter's 19, you know, she goes to a University of Michigan, and I see her. When all our friends are sitting around the house sometimes in the, during the summer, they're texting, texting each other. They're on the phone. They're in the same room and they're letting each they're other know. They're in the know. same room. They're sending a video. I, 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 Do you fear the, view, the future of films in terms of films like A Bronx Tale, You, De Niro, Pesci, Al Pacino, the icons of the genre? 
Yeah. And you probably already know this because you know you had such a global reach, but you spoke to people in the countryside of Ireland, in the UK, in all these nations around Europe, just these men who really value the concepts of loyalty. And even if their business was legal, they could be a builder. Right. They could be in any industry, but they knew they, they took the odd thing in without declaring it to the tax man. And they knew in order to get away with that lifestyle, you have to surround yourself with business partners who aren't going to speak and who have your back underneath it all. And although there's the violence uh, of what you guys did, and although we see how it's portrayed because there was guys who weren't educated to kind of understand the tragedy of taking someone else's existence away from them, it was still nearly more romantic than modern day love stories. You show yeah, me, a, you show me a film now in which two people fall in love and I won't feel the same as I will feel about the likes of you and De Niro standing with a pistol in your hand. That makes me cry. Although you're murderers, I fucking love you. Yeah, well, that's like, it's like that anti-hero thing. You know, people don't realize a Sonny uh, in Bronx Tale He's told the boy the same things that the father did. When you saw that it was a trauma, back then there wasn't things like school counselors or people sitting right. down in therapy and saying, what did you see? But it obviously had an impact on you. You saw somebody's life taken off them uh, in an instant, and then you didn't tell. But did you then have to, in order to store that trauma, envision a romantic idea of it? And therefore, you, kinda, you, you, you have to nearly moralize your own decision, even though you're only nine, you to tell yourself constantly you did a good thing. So the figure that Sonny is, who was loosely based on the guy who murdered someone in real life in front of you, is actually a kind-hearted guy who has your best interests at heart. Was it nearly like yes. you, you constantly told yourself over the next years that followed that I did the right thing and this is what the story nearly is? Yeah, exactly. Well, my father said, I said, I did the right thing, right, Dad? I mean, I, I did the right thing. I, I'm, I'm, I'm talking like I was. And my, and my father says, well, you, you, you did a good, I, I did the good thing. I kept saying, I did a good thing, right? And he said, you did a good thing for a bad man. Let's not forget that. See, that's what he was trying to say. But to my father, he was a bad guy because, you know, he, well, look, I'm not, I'm not saying Sonny was a choir boy now. He was not. But his intention towards me was good. You know, I, I always believed, I didn't think of it back then, Michael, but as a grown man, as I got older, and that's why I eventually wrote about it, I thought that Sonny, he looked at me like I was his penance or something in life. In real life, did you actually have that mentor relationship with him? Oh, yes. And did you witness his own execution? I got there when he was already killed. I, I was aware of the fact that you saw the murder and the fact that you, yes. you kept your mouth shut. And all that. I didn't know that you then were actually torn between your bus driving father and a, and a mafia figure who was kind of leading you on an ethical yeah, path. I, was, I, I can't say that I was torn because I never wanted, I never wanted to be a wise guy. I mean, I admire them, but I never wanted to hurt my mother and father because I knew how much they loved me and they loved their children. And they wanted me to be a very big success. And they said I was going to be a success. And it gave me a lot of, of confidence, but you couldn't help. And that's what makes a Bronx Tale so such a good story. And that's why it's endured for over 30 years. Mm. And it went from a play to a movie to a musical. It's because the story is there's these archetypes. These archetypes in this story, it's about, it's not about good and evil. It's about gray and gray. As bad as Sonny was, there was goodness to him. As good as my father was, he didn't want me to date a black girl. Okay. You know, he, he wouldn't have liked that. Not that my father was racist. He wasn't. But he was he was also he was practical. He said, I don't want my son to go through. I know what he meant. He didn't want his son to go through what he was about to go through. You know, it was more. It's, it's always like it's not so black and white life. Everything is gray and gray. That's what makes that story so good. And Chaz, your four mates, they wanted to go on and be wise guys. If Sonny was born to a different upbringing. We're talking about someone who would have been a lecturer, a philosopher, somebody who was a highly intelligent man who was oh. not given an opportunity. So he never would have encouraged you to join the mafia. But oh, when no. he saw your four mates, your four closest mates going down that road, he knew they didn't, A, they didn't have what it took, and B, this thing has no future. And exactly. did, they, did they actually die in real life in a, in a car explosion? Yes, they did. But I, I never, see, and again, I embellished that. In the movie... In the movie, Sonny pulled me out of the car. But in real life, what happened was I put my foot in the car 
I saw the gasoline and I put my foot back out and I, I said to them, those were the exact words from the movie. I said, where'd you get the car? And they said, we borrowed it. And I knew what that meant. They stole it. And I, I thought of my parents and I couldn't go in the car and I backed right out again. Do you ever miss so, those boys? Do you still see their faces? Do you ever dream about them? Oh, uh, not, not a lot, but I think about them once in a while. We still talk about them. My, my other friends, we, we still talk about, you know, and uh, those guys and what happened and, uh, and how many other guys died. We all talk about that all the time. When we get together every year, we have dinner every year for the past. Well, for the past, I would say 38 years, we've been having dinner at my house. And we all have dinner. We sit down and we tell stories. And it's, uh, it's a great time. It's just a great time. What I love about these films, though, is how they capture that. Although we've set up kind of false mechanisms like uh, the corporate ladder or formal education, although important in certain ways, that a human's morals or ethics are linked to upbringing that they had, regardless of what resources were available. And that's kind of the message that's even portrayed in The Bronx Tale in terms of the working man who is your father, Lorenzo, driving a bus. Right. And the I weird mean, dealer. They have the same view of life. It's just that in order to get by and survive, they've had to go down completely different paths. You're a very smart guy for 28 years old, I have to say, Michael. You're a very intuitive guy. Uh, and you're not sincerely. You are. I mean, uh, people don't realize that my dad was so honorable. He was so honorable. Like... They offered my dad $150 a week to carry the numbers on the bus. Which is now, we're talking, that's what, like a grand a week, $1,200 oh a week? Oh, my God. He was making $40 a week driving a bus. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you know, they offered him $150 a week. I mean, he was like, uh, he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. He said no. He wouldn't do it. And Did I your said, mother I, actually kind of want them to? Because obviously... No, the my, mother mother, <laughs> my mother actually said, well, gee, you know, uh, you know, she goes, wait a second. You know, we really could use it. And my father said, I'll never forget it. He said, if I get pinched, they called it pinchback. He goes, if I get pinched, I'll lose my retirement. And I, and I don't, and he says this, he's saying this as a young man, right? Meanwhile, my father retired at 59 years old right? From the bus company. And he lived to be 90 and he collected all his retirement. So he was right. He was right. Your dad in real life actually spent a month hanging around with Bobby De Niro. Oh my Bobby God. De Niro could get his character. And your dad was obviously uh, the son of Italian immigrants. He would have loved yes. when things like the Godfather came out. They were, all these boys, the second generation. Yes. It, it was the first time they were represented. And when all these boys took off, they felt like their voice was heard. So De Niro to him was a, a kind of junior icon nearly. And De Niro was following around for a month thinking, how do we behave, Lorenzo? My father taught him how to drive a bus. My father would take him on. They, they had a bus <laughs> available for him. My dad and my father taught him. And he kept, I remember the words my dad said. He used to say, remember, Bob, you got a, you got a big dance floor behind you. Don't forget that. You know, Don't turn too hastily. I, exactly. And first of all, my dad couldn't believe it. Now, think about this. He, he looked at De Niro in the 70s, you know, uh, growing. We were growing up. My dad, Robert De Niro, wants to meet me. Robert De Niro's going to play me? Are you kidding? I go, no, Dad. He wants to meet with you. He goes, well, what do I say to him? I go, just don't worry, you know. And and when Bob came up and I brought my dad to meet him, and they got along great. And my father and and Bob loved them because he was so, you know, he was not full of shit and kind and yeah. wonderful. And De Niro's not full of shit at all, is he? He's just a proper. Uh, he's just a proper artist. No bullshit. Absolutely. No, 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 there's no bullshit with Bob. Bob's a stand-up guy, man. Although your dad taught you the principles of the working man and how, how brave it is to get up in the morning and provide for your family as opposed to pull a trigger and go down a life of crime, was it the mixture of both influences that made you say, although I respect your narrative, I'm not going to be a criminal, but I'm not going to be an everyday stiff who is a slave to someone else. And that's what made you want to become an artist. I, I think I always wanted to be an artist. I, I, I just was... I used to write poetry when I was young. I, I, I used to write. I just wanted to be. I remember my friend, uh, my friend Sal, who told me 
and we're still friends. He said to me, he goes, I always knew you were going to be successful, Chaz. I said, well, come on. He said, do you remember? I go, How, when do I remember that? He goes, we were like 11 or 12. We were in the hallway on 667, 187th Street. He goes, I remember it. it was a cold, it was raining and it was cold. And you said to me, and you looked at me and you said, I, I, you said, hey, Sal, there's got to be more. I mean, there's got to be more to life than just hanging out here. And he said, I don't know. I'm pretty happy. I, and, I re- and when he said that, I said, yeah, that's Sal, because he's still pretty. He's happiest guy in the world, you know. And I remember when he told me I said that, and I was always wanting to have more, I guess. You didn't start getting big roles or big recognition no. until you were in your 30s. So, like, what, what, oh, no, what was no. Charles Palminteri at 18? Well, I started out, I, I was singing with a doo-wop group, you know. Uh, we were just singing, like, you know, on the corner, not making money. So that went on for, you know, a, a little while. And then finally, uh, after about a year, you know, I, I, uh, well, I was trying to get a job, you know, I didn't want to go to college. And, um, I couldn't afford to go to college, really. I shouldn't say that. I couldn't afford to. And, and then finally, I, I just, uh, I said, well, you know, maybe I'll, uh, uh, I, I was singing and, and this wise guy heard me singing on the corner. He goes, why don't you come in the club? He had a nightclub. Yeah, he wasn't a made guy. He was just a soldier. What's the just, difference between made guy and soldier? Just well, a made guy is he's part of the family. In other words, he he gets he gets he gets pieces of me. He has to earn money for the family. Yeah. He, but uh, you you can't. He can never be touched. He could go anywhere, do anything he wants. No one could hurt him. No one could touch him. He's a made guy. That's it. That's a big. Does this still exist, Chaz? Nowadays, no. Yes. Ever since John Gotti got put away, has it not oh. just kind of evaporated a bit? The mafia is not what it was. Yeah. Oh, no. Is there still oh, made guys walking around places like the Bronx and New Jersey who are known yeah. as made men who can make people give them, go into a butcher shop and go give me half your fucking profit or I'm coming in here they, and killing they, it? It's not like it was. It's not like it was. Are there still made guys? Absolutely. They, they haven't opened the books I heard in a long time, you know, uh, what I mean by open the books, I'm sorry if I'm uh, saying things that people don't understand. When they opened the books in 1975 and that and they made a bunch of people. And then uh, lately, they, then I heard they closed the books. So they're not making anybody and nobody really. I don't know anybody, but you always get these guys that still want to get made because. But once you get made, you put a target on your back. Sooner or later, you're yeah. going to go to jail. You're going to go to jail. Would there be That's made it. guys who are big fans of the likes of you, Al Pacino, De Niro, Pesci? Like, is there made guys who would who have told you throughout your career, I love your work, and you just have to go, I appreciate yes. you, but you're made, so stay away from me? I don't say that. What I do say is I, I just, they invite me to dinner, they invite me out, and I, and I, I don't go. You, you'd have a deep-down respect for made men. Oh, no question. Let, let, I'll tell you a story, Michael. I was very good. I had a dear friend of mine. I can't mention his name, but we, we grew up together. We played basketball together. We hung out together. And over the years, and then I went to, obviously, I went to L.A. in 1986. And then 88, I, 88, I wrote Bronx Tale. Bam! And I really hit it in 1989, like yeah. 30 years ago. So around, around 1993, uh, you know, I was making, making a ton of money, making movies and I got nominated for Academy Award and I went back to my neighborhood to see some of my friends. And I went back and I would go back there periodically once in a while, but this time I went and I went into, I went on the corner and there was my friend. I haven't seen him in years. And I heard he got made this guy, this guy got actually, he got made. Yeah. And he was climbing up the ladder very fast. And I said, and we were just talking and we were saying it. And I happened to turn to him because he said something that was funny, and, but wrong. I mean, I could curse on this on this thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, come on. I said, come on, what the fuck? I just said, what the fuck do you know? I said to him. Yeah. No, he just said something about another person. I said, come on. Yeah. You were you even around. Like, what the fuck do you know, right? And I could feel the tension of everybody there just stop. Fuck. And he, and he looked at me. And said, Chaz, could I talk to you a second? And I was like, what the fuck? What, what happened? What just happened? And he, he pushed me. He brought me to the side. They, it's called the elbow walk. They put their fingers around your elbow. And, and he's my age now. It's my age. 
He brought me to the side and he said, hey, do, you know, Chaz, you know what happened to me, right? And I said, what? He says, you know, they'll never say those words, you know? He'll say, you know, that thing, you know, you know, everybody talked, did you, did you know about that? And I went, and then I realized what he was talking about. I said, oh, right, yes. I said, yes, congratulations. I kissed him. I said, I'm sorry, I forgot all about that. Congratulations. And he said, uh, do me a favor, Chaz. You, you, you can't talk to me like that anymore. <laughs> you know, especially in front of people. You just can't do that. <laughs> as, soon, as soon as he said that, he, he was right. I knew. And I said, absolutely, man. I'm sorry. I apologize. He said, no, no. I, know, I knew you didn't realize it. I said, I hugged him. We kissed. And then we went back and talked again with everybody. That's what a made man is. It means that you cannot question or talk to them at a turn in front of anybody, even though they no. probably become made through serious immoral crimes. No, no, you can't. You can't. And he rose up the ranks and he's, you know. You go to L.A., you say to yourself, no interest in getting made. Don't want to be a no. jumper or a working man. So you're bouncing on doors. And this story fascinates me. What actually forced you? Because the thought of a one-man show, it's outrageous. If you actually think about the aspects yes. of life, such as confidence and how insecure so many people are, for you, right. limited experience, but to go up with something that started with a monologue or a soliloquy. Well, what happened was, what happened was, Michael, I'll tell you the whole story. What happened was, uh, what happened was we were, I was working, you know, and when I got to L.A., I, I, I you know, I was, a, I was a really good actor and I was a good auditioner. I knew I was a really good actor and a writer. So when I got to L.A., I got on Hill Street Blues right away. I got on a bunch of shows and I made some money and I put that away. But then as anybody is, you, you start getting cold again. You, <clears throat> I ran through all the shows and to break into films was very difficult. So I started running out of money. So then I got a, I used to box and I got a job as a doorman. At a, at a very swanky nightclub. And, and I'm there one night and I'm there working for four months and I'm trying to supplement my income, you know, trying to audition. And then finally, this one guy comes walking right over to me and he goes, let me in. And he was really nasty to me. And, I, and there was the ropes there. And I said, hey, wait, just wait a second. And he said, do you know who I am? And I says, yeah, I know who you are. You're the guy who's not getting in tonight. That's who. Irvin so Lazar, got, wasn't it? Madonna, Humphrey yeah, Bogart. Yeah. He, was, he was a high so profile. He got really Lazar. mad. And who was the guy? It was Swifty Lazar. And Swifty Lazar was the biggest urge, agent in the world at the time. And he looked at me and said, you will be fired in 15 minutes. I said, oh, really? I said, get online. Everybody says that to me. I didn't know who he was. Finally, the, the owner came out because the guy was making such a stink. And I heard, and I heard him go, Swifty, oh, my God, I apologize. Yeah. Just like he said, 15 minutes later, I got fired. Just like he said. I got back into my 1972 Honda. I went back to my dumpy apartment in L.A. in Studio City. No, North Hollywood, actually. I, that was the first one in North Hollywood. And I sat there and I said, what the hell am I going to do? I had $200 left in the bank. I said, what am I going to do? So then I looked and I saw this card that my father always gave me. When he, he gave it to me when I was very young. It's, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. Amen. I looked at, on an index card. I said, you know what? If they won't give me a part, I'll write one myself. I went to Thrifty Drugstore. I got five tabs of yellow paper. And I sat, caught back and I said, I said I'm going to write a one-man show. I'm going to be in it. I'm going to, I said, I'm always, I know I'm a great storyteller. I'm going to play all the parts. And I said, what am I going to write about? Then I thought about the killing. And I wrote the first five minutes down about this killing that I saw when I was nine. I performed it for my theater workshop on that Monday. People just freaked out. I said, wow, this is pretty good. So each, I said, wow, I could be onto something here. So each week I would write 10 minutes. I would perform it on a Monday and people would comment what they liked, what they didn't like, you know, and uh, I would hear the laughter. I would tape every session. And out of that 10 minutes, I took another four minutes. And I kept doing this almost a year. And at the end of a year, I had 90 minutes of this show. Listen to the self-belief here, because we're, we're talking to a generation here who are on social media, who right. anxiety, self-doubt, comparing yourself to other people. Think about what you're saying here. No money, no future, 
no credits. But whilst you're writing down this story on yellow sheets of paper, you genuinely think you're going to the fucking top. Yes. I, well, actually, I was saying to myself, something's got to happen. This is really good. I said, maybe I'll get an agent from this. To be honest with you, I, I didn't have an agent. I said, well, I can get an agent. Maybe an agent will see me and, 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 and sign me. You know, but I knew it was getting it was really good. But then when I, I don't, when, when I performed it, when I first performed it for just one theater company, when I did the whole thing, in it's an entirety. They all stood up and started clapping for, for five, ten minutes. And I was like, holy shit, what the fuck did I just do? And that was the first time I did the whole thing straight through. Did you find along your way because it was so kind of raw? And so natural that there was any of that kind of theater snobbery as if to say, okay, listen, this isn't practice. This isn't educated. This guy is just ranting about Italian mafia. Did you get any of those fucking jealous? Well, yes. While fake I intellectuals? Was, yes, yes. While I was writing it at the theater company, yes, some people said, ah, what is this? Is this a show? Is this stand up? Is this? Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know who cares about these people. Yeah, you get that. And you, but you have to just ignore that. If you have a vision, you have blinders on. You go straight forward. Just you're always going to get naysayers. Always. What's the secret forward. to those blinders, though? How how do you make sure that they literally stay there for a forty long year career and uh, and then some? How have you had the ability to give such a little fuck about what people think of you? Well, like I said, it's growing up where I did, and my mom, mom and daddy. It's such an artistic advantage, isn't it, though, to kind of grow, yes. although it might be painful and you might not have had as nice breakfasts or the guarantee yeah. of a kind of paternal income as people um, even listening to the show might have had. Your brain was constantly taken. Because although you, it might have been uncomfortable, it was fucking so beneficial, wasn't it? Yes. You get beat up every fucking day. So what's it like to raise kids then who came from money and privilege? Like, is there an unrelatability like you and your father? There was a hint of relatability because although he might have come from less or but he still came from the working environment that yes. we need to do it. But you look at your kids now, they're Chaz Palminteri's children. Is there, yes. is, there just a little, is there a little bit missing from the kind of well, relatability? Well, obviously, are, are they a little entitled? Yes. Are they a little spoiled? Yes. But they are workers. They are because I inspired not just me, me and my wife, we instilled in them that same car that my father gave me. I put it in their room since they've been born, both of them. In fact, it's amazing. I, 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 I might as well say it because today, today, my son is a singer songwriter. Today, his new single is out, Dante Palminteri. If you go to his Instagram, it's it just came out today. Dante Palminteri's new single called Brunettes. Check it out. It's really great. What genre? Yes. Uh, rock. It's pop rock. He went to Berkeley School Love in it. Boston, the top musical school in Boston. My daughter got into the top theater school uh, in, uh, in the country, University of Michigan. They are workers. Now, again, they, they just work. Well, they're a little privileged, a little bit, because obviously... Their dad, they didn't have to grow up like, you know, fighting in the street. Is there ever a time where you walk into Dante's room? And although I presume this tune is great, Brunettes by Dante Palminteri, by the way, to all the listeners. In your fatherhood life, have you ever walked in there and grabbed them by the fucking shirt like Lorenzo grabbed you? I, not, I, I, I went in there. There are times I was mad. Yes. I said, hey, are you working hard enough on this? Are you doing this? you got to work on this. And so did my wife. And it, they were going to college. I don't know what college. They were going to go to college. And by the grace of God, they got into two of the top colleges. But they were going to college. They were going to work. That was it. They were going to, they were going to, I, you had to teach them. We had to teach them discipline. You do your homework. You don't leave till you do your homework. We yeah. check your homework. If your homework's not right, you do it again. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> That's it. Who are your friends? Show me your friends. I'll show you where, where you're going to go in life. Yeah. I don't so, like so, so you became Sonny as a father, essentially. No question. No, qu I became my father. I became Lorenzo and I became Sonny. Yes. Yes. But I taught my son everything that I was taught. I taught him. I, 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 you know, I had that street education that I always taught him. 
I said, listen, my son, every deal finally comes to the point. Nothing comes to a decision until somebody's willing to walk away. Do you understand that? Mm. At the end, it comes down to who's got the finger on the nuclear missile. Yeah. Whoever's got the finger on the button, he becomes the one who gets his way in the end. Yeah, life isn't the Cold War. Something's got to give in reality, you know what I mean? Yes, yes. I mean, in any decision you make, you go, listen, this is how much I want. They go, well, I ain't paying that much. Then you have to decide, am I willing to walk away and live with it? It gets to 89. You're doing this one-man show. Okay. And eventually, Bobby De Niro hears, there's this kid from the Bronx. He's talented. He's ballsy. He has a real story. We feel his heart on stage. Right. And I'm pretty sure he's going to the top. Bob De Niro shows up to a pretty well, small me, production in LA and he calls you backstage. Give, right. Let me just give you, you and your audience a little pre-thing of what happened before Bob De Niro. So I borrowed, I borrowed the man sends me money. A friend of mine legitimately sent me about 35000 I put up the show in a Was he made? Show. No. No, no, no. He was a legitimate guy, a businessman. Right. He said, get 35000 And I put up the show. Bam! The reviews come out. It was like unbelievable. They called it. I can't even repeat it. I'm embarrassed. But it was like amazing. Yeah. Like it's a movie. It's the first time anybody did a movie on stage by himself. Everybody in Hollywood. A week later, I get offered $250,000 from Universal. And I, they call me up at my house. How they got my home number, I don't know. I didn't even have an agent. Those Illuminati fuckers don't play by the rules, Chaz. We know. Oh, that. they don't. They should. <laughs> so I said, well, I want to play Sonny and I want to write the screenplay. I said to them. They said, no, no, no. Forget it. No, we just want to. We want the story. And I said, I'm not doing it. So I didn't do it. Uh, right. And all of a sudden I realized what I just did. I just turned down $250,000. I had $200 in the back in the bank, Michael, my hand to God. Did you ever ring Lorenzo and go, I've after been offering this amount of money and he's telling you, are you fucking crazy? Take it. Or Harry, did you say, I trust Harry, my art. I'm going I'm well, to You're it. absolutely right. I, on the first offer, I called my mom and dad. And I said, look, mom, they offered me $250,000, a quarter million dollars. I said, I want to take it to help you and dad out. But they, you know, they don't want me as an actor and they just want to take it. They don't want, you want me to write it. They said, well, what do you feel? I said, I, I want to write it and I want to be in it. They said, well, you do what you want, son. Don't worry about us. They did say that to me. Fuck. And I said, thanks, mom. Thanks, dad. Right. Two weeks later, Michael, I get another call. $500,000. Same thing. I say, hey, I want to play Sonny. I want to write it. No. They said, we can't do that, Chaz. I said, then forget it. I'm doing the thing. I go back to doing it. We had to move into a big theater, 300 seats. The crowds, it was lines around the corner. Jack Nicholson came to see it. Al Pacino came to see it. Ray Sharkey came to see it. Burt Reynolds came to see it. Jerry Weintraub came to see it. Ray mm -hmm. Stark came to see it. Every big producer in Hollywood, yeah. agent, director, were coming to see it. Everybody wanted it. Finally, I signed with William Morris. I said, William Marshall's after me. CAA was after me. ICM was after me. Uh, this is how crazy it was, Michael. I was it's a remarkable piece, so I can understand it, but I, I get I was it. driving this car, my 72. I still have my 72 Honda, okay? The same car. Same car. I had a hole in the, in the you know, well, because when I started doing the show, I wasn't making any money. We were doing the play, but the play just made enough money to, to pay for the theater because it was a little theater. Finally... Finally, I, I couldn't go see William Mars because my car started overheating. This is the true story, Michael. They called me up because I told them I can't be there. So they said, you didn't sign with somebody else, did you? And I said, no, I, I, my car overheated. They said, never mind, we'll get right back to you. An hour later, somebody knocks on my door in my, in my dumpy apartment in, in Studio North Hollywood. And he goes, you Chaz Palminteri? I said, yeah. Look, he says, come with me. This is 1989. I go downstairs. I see a brand new 1989 Cadillac Eldorado, black with saddle interior. He says, here, William Morris got this for you. Don't be late for the meeting. I said, what? I called up the agent. I said, what's going on? He said, no, we don't want you to be late for the meeting. We leased it for you for two years. It's yours. I said, but I didn't sign with you yet. They said, it's okay. If you don't, you don't. Just don't be late for the meeting. Do you imagine this? And I end up signing with them, you know. And so anyway, to get back to the theater, 
It was insanity. Finally, I signed with them. They said, Chaz, we have another meeting for you. I said, okay. We walk into this meeting, this big studio. The guy has a piece of paper on the desk, Michael. He pushes it over towards me and says, Chaz, if you sign that paper, you'll have a check for $1 million tomorrow. <laughs> I have $200 in the bank, $1 million. And I say, my words were to him, is there a bathroom around here? And he said, yes. There's the executive bathroom right over there. I said, excuse me. I left my agents and everybody sitting at the table. I walked into the bathroom. I'm looking in the mirror and I'm just looking at myself. And I put my hand in my pocket and in my pocket, for some ungodly reason, I took the card. It's with not me. the card saying waste of talent. Yes, it is. Oh I took God. the card with me. I don't know why. I think it was because they said we got a big meeting. And for some reason, I think I just took the card with me. And I look down and I see the wasted talent card. And I look in the mirror. And this is what I said. I went, fuck it. And I walked back outside. And I said, I'll sign that piece of paper. And I remember their faces. They were all like smiling. I said, but I play Sonny. I write the screenplay. And the guy just dropped his head and he said, Chaz, Chaz. He says, listen, we, we saw you. You're a great actor, but nobody knows you. You're an unknown. We can't make a movie this big with an unknown. And I said, well, why don't you just make it? And then I'll be known. So he says to me, he goes, Charles, you realize this movie won't get made, right? And I said, you're right with you, but it will get made. He goes, what makes you so sure? I said, because it's too fucking good. That's what And it's a Bronx fucking tale. And I stood up and I walked out of the meeting with my agents and they looked at me and they were shaking their heads like, Jesus Christ, this kid, right? Finally, two weeks later, I do the show. Stage manager runs over to me and says, Chaz, Robert De Niro is in your dressing room. He just saw the show. I said, what? He's in your dressing room. He's waiting for you. I walk in the dressing room and there's Bob De Niro sitting there. I said, hey, how you doing? Never met him before. I said, how you doing? He goes, hey, man. He goes, that's the greatest one show I ever saw. He goes, you did a movie. I said, yeah. He said, listen, I want to just, I said, I know, Bob. I know. I said, but you know how I, I, I jumped in on him. I said, you know, you look, Chaz, if you sell this thing to somebody, they're going to come to me anyway. He goes, but let me tell you what I want to do. He goes, I think you should play Sonny. You'll be great as Sonny. And you should write it because it's your life and it'll be real and honest. He goes, I'll play your father and I'll direct it. And he goes, and if you shake my hand right now, that's the way it'll be. I shook his hand and that's what happened, Michael. Do you think that, and that's an absolutely remarkable story, and it sounds like a, it sounds like we've missed a screenplay there. That sounds like an off-Broadway tale should have been its own movie. The Rise of Charles Palminteri yes. sounds like a fascinating film. When are we doing that? I'm in the midst of writing it right now. You're a smart guy, Michael. <laughs> Get it done, because it's fucking fascinating. I just hope that with years of wealth and success, you don't lose that bit of soul that made you create the original brilliance. No, you know, you're, no, you're right. No, I have to remind myself that. And I write and I, I've written other movies and take yourself out of the silk robe and fucking isolate yeah. from the family for six months and eat cereal. You might recapture the original voice. You know what I mean? Because yeah. pain creates genius. Absolutely. Well, what it does is it, 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 it makes it. Why do you think a lot of criminals uh, they get in the best shape of their lives in jail. But like, it's such easy cash. But I was watching Netflix or so, some kind of streaming device the other day, and I saw you pop up in this film called Little Man that someone yeah. I was with was watching. Ridiculous yeah. production, terrible <laughs> film, not funny. What is Chaz Palminteri doing in it? Well, I, I, look, there's no any way, to, just to be honest, there's sometimes you go, I'm doing my art, I write my stuff, I write my plays, I do my movies, I've written other movies. But then when you're sitting down and you're writing and somebody comes over to you and they say, look, we're going to give you, uh, uh, you know, uh, $600,000 for three weeks work. And that's that's kind of what we're they're the figures we're kind of talking, is it? Yeah. Yes. Then you go, you know what? Hey, you know, I have children. I got homes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. OK. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know what? Did it hurt my career? No. As long as I could still do my art. Yes. And that's really what it comes down to, Michael. This is for me and this is for the beach house. You know, that's what you do. Yeah. You know, it's just that simple. 
I have to be honest with you. How much of it do you think is linked to physical appearance? Because we all hear about the Hollywood face. And although you, you, have, you, you didn't have work done or you weren't traditional, you were a gorgeous guy. Like oh. even in a Bronx tale, even, even with okay. Sonny being the aging guy using the three fingers, there's just something right. around the eyes that is particularly attractive. Well, I, I think looks are very important, but I think you got to have talent. You could have the best looks in the world, but if you can't act, then you're not going to get anywhere. If you can't, you could be a model. I mean, you can go be a model maybe, but if you can't act and you can't write, talent always wins out in the end, I believe. It just wouldn't have worked as well. There's something around his eyes when you act them. It just shouts sincerity. That's what the beauty of Bronx Tale is. It isn't world-class acting. I mean, the guy who plays C, he's a very good actor, but he's not breathtaking. Right. Well, those were all, they were all, uh, me, De Niro, and uh, Joe Pesci were the only actors in the movie. Till today, people think I'm a made, people think I'm a made guy. I'm in the mob. I was in the mob. I was never in the mob. And I'm very honest about that. I was never in the mob. I was never, in a, I was never even a soldier in the mob. Uh, I, I just grew up with them and I was so close to them. And for whatever reason I have of this, I wasn't a great, then I, I ended up going to Bronx community college. I never, I was not a great student, but I, I just had this photographic memory that I remember everything. I don't know. I just do. And now you sit, you, you live in New York. There could be houses elsewhere and you have, your kids who go to college and everything's great and you have the happy wife, but how much of you was still on that stoop when you grow old? I'm just asking this from a life point of view. When you have Chaz Palmentary's not just his career, his vision and the things he's seen in life and the experiences, when you sit there at 69, who are you in terms of an identity? When you My sit idea. there now and, it's, and, and you've made it, what, what, what do you view yourself as? Is it a throwback to Lorenzo the bus driver? Or is it the fact that you know that your grandchildren or great-grandchildren will still be the product of a wealthy, successful man. My, 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 what I feel right now is all I want to do is just keep putting out new work. I'm writing, I'm writing a musical, I'm writing another play. I have this other film that we talked about, my life actually, how it happened. And my job right now is just to put it out there, not to judge it, just yeah. put it out there. You see, that's how you survive. You put it out there and you let it go. I put little man out there. I let it go. I put something out there. I let it go. I don't read reviews. I have yeah. not read a review since 1989. So, so that, that whole philosophy you have that no one cares is something you actually live by. You, you, you yes. try your best to recognize that everybody stays in their own fucking cabinet and anyone else's opinion is just empowering people who don't matter in your existence. You know, Woody Allen said something to me once uh, I, when I worked with him and, and, and it's very true. And you can see, by the way, he lives his life when, as a writer. He says that your job is just to be prolific and just put it out there. And at the end of your lifetimes, you'll have a hundred, you may 80 movies, you know, 10 will be absolutely brilliant. Maybe 30 will be really good. Maybe another 20 will be average. Maybe 10 will be not so good. And maybe 10 will suck. But that's, that's your job. Your job is just to put it out there. Your job is not to judge it. And that's what I do. I just put my... Right now, at my age now, because time is so precious, all I do is put new stuff out. And I don't judge it. I don't worry about what anybody says about me. My job is to put it out there. You know what? Because the only way you really judge art is through time. Yeah. Raging Bull lost. Raging Bull lost. And yeah. it's a brilliant movie. Goodfellas lost. And those are much better movies than the ones who won the Oscar. But in time, you look at these movies and you see, wow. Then you look at the other movies and say, well, where did ordinary people go? That's, you know, it's a nice movie, but it's not Raging Bull. You talked about time being precious. And obviously, although I'm younger than you, it's still precious for all of us. I mean, what are years really in the grand scheme of things? We're essentially the same age. What's right. the story? Obviously, you came from Catholic parents and from an Irish background. That's something I can relate to going back to grandparents, great grandparents. But do you fear death in terms of like, what, what do you think happens when you die? Is it just game over? Is there a point to any of this shit or is it just acceptance? You use your human life to such a good way. It's kind of sad for not to be rewarded with some kind of afterlife. It's sad to think that if you do die, it was all kind of, although children, grandchildren, two or 300 years down the line, it's all kind of pointless. Like, what's your take on... 
my my I think what you take into the afterlife, and this is my opinion. I read uh, a lot of Rudolf Steiner. Rudolf Steiner was a, a, a great uh, philosopher, psychiatrist. Carl Jung. I believe you take your will into the next life. The more will I have now in discipline, I could take that into the next life. Look, there's only two things that I, you could actually leave behind: children and your art. Mm. That's it. Yeah. Money, fame. That doesn't mean bullshit. But children and art. That's it. That's so. To me. I don't want to have any regrets when I die. I don't mind. I don't mind dying. I don't want to get sick. That's why I, I work out and I take care of myself. Yeah. But as long as you don't have regrets, there's three. There's three questions I think of. Okay, did I love? Yeah, I loved. I loved my wife. I loved, was I loved? Yeah, people loved me. And did I matter? Yeah, I mattered. Yeah, I mattered a lot. You know. Yeah, what? no, fuck I me, see, you mattered. I see people that uh, that they saw Bronx Tale. And I have this card that I walk around with, Michael. It's uh, the saddest thing in life is wasted talent. I have these cards. I made I made them up many years ago, and I still walk around with them in my wallet. And when I meet a young actor, it says, "Oh, Mr. Pompey, I love your movies, and your movie changed my life." I go, "Really? Yes." I said, "Here's a card." I said, "Here, take this card." I said, "Whatever you do, don't waste your talent in your life." Really, and I've given these cards out for the past—I don't know, thirty years, maybe. And every once in a while, I run into somebody. Goes, "Hey, you know, I'm on a TV series. I'm on that." I go, "Oh, fantastic!" He goes, "You gave me one of those cards years ago, and and that helped me." I go, "Oh, wow, thanks, man. I don't remember him. I don't. I don't remember giving him a card, but yeah. uh, but that means a lot to me. That that means a lot that you could help people." You know, it, it's like you're, you're of service. And that's what we're here for, to be of service, man. Fear nothing. Do not, do not, if you listen to other people, you know, look, uh, criticism is like going to the refrigerator. Open the refrigerator. You say, eh, you know, what, what am I going to have today? Yeah, I'll take, yeah, I'm going to have some peanut butter today. That's what it's like. Everybody has an opinion. Everybody. Sometimes a good uh, a criticism is good. You say, hmm, you know what? That's a good one. That's a good idea. I'm going to do that. Here's the difference. I, I tell you, Michael, always take other people. If somebody has a good idea, take it. Take it. What are you protecting yourself from? A great idea? Are you kidding? But a lot of people will not take it. And the reason why they don't is because they don't know who they are inside. They don't think they deserve to be where they are because Robert De Niro told me something. That's one of the greatest things he ever told me. He said, Chaz, it takes just as much talent to recognize a great idea as it is to come up with it yourself. Never forget that. So if somebody gives you a great idea and you say, wow, why didn't I think of that? Well, I'm not as talented as him. No, you're wrong. You are as talented as him because you recognize that's a great idea. You see, Ideas are in the universe. They're for everybody to take. So don't be so like, you know, when people get an ego, they substitute confidence for being rigid. Mm. You see what I'm saying? No, yeah. I don't want to take that. Act. When I'm directing a movie and somebody goes, hey, the first AD says, Chaz, you know, can I say, I go, what's up? He goes, well, you're shooting the scene over here, but the sunlight is going to be better over here. And I go, wow, you're right. Forget what I just said, folks. Move that camera. I don't have no problem saying that. You know why? Because I know who I am. I know I'm good. I just recognize this guy had a great idea. Knowing who you are is probably linked to the fact that you've had to struggle from the day you came out of the womb. There's guys now who are pampered until 18 or 20. Yes. And resilience isn't built up. But you've, although you've had to struggle, you cannot, you cannot buy identity. And identity no. is basically what has made Chaz Palminteri. That's, That's the, correct. Your whole secret to your entire life is the fact that regardless of what happened, even if you were barred from bouncing from a certain club and whether or not no one liked your fucking play, which took huge balls, you knew who the fuck you were. And yeah. with all the currencies floating around the world, the only one that matters is, is identity. That's it. Exactly. It, I mean, now they got safe spaces 
where in colleges, yeah. if you get if somebody says something, you go to a safe yeah. space. So you fawn off responsibility. If someone criticizes oh. you, you're supposed to be strong enough not to give a shit. But nowadays it's encouraged to rat them out. And then yes. what, what's the future of that, Chaz? Where do we fucking know. end I up mean, as a society? You won't be here to see it. And I, I don't want to say that, but we're talking in 20, 30 yes. years. Where the You're fuck right. will we be? I don't fucking know. I don't know. I mean, you know, when these kids now, I, I, I see a little league game. They don't keep score. There's no strikes and balls. Is that everybody true? Gets, everybody gets a trophy. Are you fucking kidding me? Yeah. When we lost, the other team made fun of us. You guys suck. And we were able to take it. We were able to take If we failed, we, they said to us, hey, you suck. You didn't get, you guys came in yeah. last. And we left. In order to, to, to give off that ideology, cancel capitalism. But as long as capitalism exists, you cannot delude people with the fact that there isn't winners and losers. And that's yes. the power of Silicon Valley. It's the power of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, fucking TikTok, making everyone seem like there is no real losers, but the real losers is fucking everyone because they're taking our privacy and they're taking our right to identity. Right. And that's really what it is. Yes. Look, I, I think just like you learn have to, you, you got to learn, you got to learn life. You got to learn in life to be, to lose once in a while. It's okay to lose. It's Okay. And I remember when my when my uh, kids auditioned for parts and they didn't get them, and they were like, "I'm a, I'm good, Dad." I said, "I know you are," because they they know I taught them. You do you audition for something, walk away, we'll walk out of that, walk away, just walk away. With an Italian heritage, I presume you know that Italy won the Euros. Yes, of course. I was very happy about that. Yes. And they, uh, sorry, you, I'm sorry for you guys. You know? Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm. I'm actually. I'm an Irishman by by. Oh, that's true. Yes, I'm by sorry. birth. So I'm actually yes. a very anti. Fuck England. Fucking oppressive motherfuckers. <laughs> but what I will say is that there's a, there's three players who miss penalties, and although sport can yeah. be unforgiving, they missed the penalties. They lost on the game. And now the whole world is going viral and defending these people and making it a race issue, even though two of the guys who did miss penalties are now in private jets and, and rapping along to uh, songs that do say the N-word, something we are trying to outlaw. Whilst one of them is a, a guy who was um, associated with charitable issues, which is supposed right. to speak up for the working class, but he's advertising a kind of materialistic aspect of life. I've no problem with everyone's entitled to do everything, but it, it, for me, it's, it's, it's a weird way of taking away the concepts of winning and losing. So democracy is kind of becoming in a strange way, something that just is looking for a balance, even though capitalism was founded on winners and losers. So I think by the fact that you probably will die within 30 years, I'd nearly swap my fucking ticket with you because uh, you've had a great life and you're going to have a good journey into the future with a great legacy. But the shit I'm going to be left with, Chaz, I don't even know what I'm going to fucking do. I just want people to be happy and be free <laughs> you know what i'm saying Let's... are you a sports fan oh huge sports fan yeah you know i was a, i'm a big conor mcgregor fan i really liked him a lot uh but i thought he he, he stepped a little out of line on the last fight when he he got into the guy's family yeah uh, because i but i think conor mcgregor does it because he does it for the tickets i don't i think i think he's probably a really good guy that's what i think yeah it's all it's all promotion and uh, it's yeah all it's, promotion. It's, it's 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 even a difficult read in terms of you'd wonder what kind of that level of success does to someone's uh brain and head and you have your own podcast Nowadays. Yes. It's oh my God! I didn't uh, talk about my podcast. I yeah. No. So so let's do it. It's something that I've listened to, and it's something that is uh, fascinating. You've had the uh, oh, the music dude from Bronx Tale on recently. You've had many yes, fascinating guests. Why did you have the winner of American Idol on, though? I mean, I I can't imagine you giving a shit about something like that. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because he eventually he he got the part of Sonny. Uh, in the touring company of the Broadway show. Well, that's, I don't know. I don't know if you're involved in that. Maybe I shouldn't excuse say me, this. Not, I find that disappointing. No, not Sonny. Excuse me. Not Sonny. Lorenzo. He's okay. A I'm sorry. Okay, that's different. That is different than he saying he got the part of Lorenzo. Now, Lorenzo, my father in the, in the uh, touring company, and he was terrific. He's a terrific actor and really terrific singer. And that's why I had him on the show. I thought he was terrific. Uh, I did my own podcast because... The way I enjoy speaking to you now for the past, whatever, 45 minutes or whatever, I enjoy talking about life and talking about things. And in my podcast, I have a great guest. I have a rock, singers, Billy Joel. I'm going to get Sting. Yeah. I got uh, uh, songwriters. 
Uh, De Niro is going to come on. I've got uh, De Niro's coming on. Yeah. And this one, I will say to people listening to this, there's people who listen to the show who will listen to American shows. And if you ever want real information or to really influence your life, tune into the Chaz Palman to every show, because these guys aren't fucking about. These guys have been there and bought the T-shirt and they will they will teach you a thing or two. Well, I think life lessons are important, Michael. I think I think that's what we're here for. Just like Sonny taught me life lessons. My father taught me. I like to just pass it down and, and teach and teach other people. And what's know? his real name? Sonny, yeah? No, it wasn't. No. Podcast or no podcast, uh, show or no show. It's been a uh, complete privilege to talk to you. And I uh, appreciate that very much. Yeah. And uh, if, if people out there, see if you can get Dante Palmentaries, you can pick it up on all the channels. Uh, Absolutely. Michael, you're a real pleasure. You're 28 years old, but you're really probably 68 years old. Chaz, <laughs> <laughs> complete yeah. honor and something I uh, something I won't forget in a hurry. Thanks for coming on the show. God bless. Thank All you. right, top man, MA show. It's been how many years, my oh, boy? You still don't know my chairs of joy. No need to go, just take Radio it slow. And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine. What's it Makes me see the light. What about those tears? My eyes, how's it make a fit? Makes me feel all 